You guys can turn to the book of James. We'll be back in James this morning. Before we get to James, just wanted to let you know about a couple things, a couple new things here at Grace. First of all, we have just launched our new website. So if you didn't know, if you go to grace-bible.org, new website. Um, on this website, we're trying to do a much better job of getting you guys our resources. So you'll find sermons, Bible studies, frequently asked questions, all kinds of things for you on that website. You'll also find uh, small groups you can sign up for, events you can participate in. Really want to connect with you through the website. Now, one new thing that we have on the website, um, as I preach over here at Southwood and Brian Fisher preaches over at Anderson, each Sunday when we finish our sermon, the next Monday we write follow-up questions, questions that have come to our mind as we've preached and as we're interacting with you in the, in the course of the sermon. So there will be a follow-up questions for every sermon, and I'll post them on the website every Monday afternoon. Uh, if you go to our website, there's just a search field up in the top right. You can type James questions, and it will bring up all of these follow-up questions. They're meant for you as, as an individual, as a family, as a small group, to take you deeper in your understanding and application of James. So if you want to go further in James this semester, grab the sermon series questions each week on Monday as we put them out. So new website. Also, uh, this semester and really from now on, uh, I'm going to try to do a better job of connecting with you guys through Facebook and Twitter. Um, I, I want, as I preach these sermons, to connect with you in, in the sermon, in the message. And so um, if you want to friend me on Facebook, I promise I'll, I'll accept your friendship, uh, or follow me on Twitter. Uh, here are my, my handles, Blake Jennings on Facebook and at Grace Bible Blake. If you want to follow me there, what I'm going to do is before each sermon, I'm going to send you the passage and some thought to be thinking about to prepare yourself for what we're going to study on Sunday morning. Then after the sermon, sometimes I'll send out resources sources, follow-up things, maybe an article, a video, something that was just really meaningful to me in the application of that sermon. Um, I'll send those out. And then uh, the other thing I'll do, which I did this week, is occasionally a few days before the sermon, I'll send out some questions that I want to hear back answers from you guys. Uh, A question about what we're going to study, because I don't want uh, our study of James to be limited by the questions that come to my mind. I want to make sure that we're addressing the questions that God is bringing to your heart, the issues that he's leading you through. So if you want to follow me, just feel free. On, uh, you don't know pressure. You don't have to. Um, but I want to connect with you as we go through James together so that you can get more out of it and so that I can give you teaching that, that addresses what God is doing in your heart. Okay, let's go ahead and jump right in. We're going to jump into James 1. This morning, we're going to look right at verse 2 just for a minute. Verse 2, that's where we're going to start, just verse 2. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. So this morning we're going to be talking about everyone's least favorite subject in the world, trials. So yeah, you you woke up early and got dressed real nice and came to church to hear about pain and suffering. So yay, glad you're here. We're going to talk about pain and suffering this morning. That's what we jump right into in verse 2. Uh, when you read chapter 1, verse 2, it's, it's really interesting. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. It's like um, when you're having a quiet time in the morning, you got your coffee, you sit down in your nice chair, you open the Bible, and you start reading wherever you left off yesterday, and you get to a verse like this one. All of a sudden, you get nervous. Oh, um, God, why did you have me read this verse today? Uh, God, are you trying to tell me something? It's, it's hardship coming, and for the rest of the day, you're walking around all anxious, you're driving like extra slow, you're looking behind your back. This is not the day to ask that girl out, because this is a day to expect hardship, because what you read, James 1, 2, 
Verses like this can mess up your whole day. None of us want to read this kind of verse. None of us want to talk about hardships, about trials. None of us but James, it seems. I I don't know James, obviously, but I kind of get the idea that the guy was really serious. It's like hello in verse 1 and then trials in verse 2 just jumps right in. No opening illustration, no funny anecdote, no warm-up, no small talk, just bam, right into pain and suffering right into one of the least enjoyable subjects in human experience, trials. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, trials. Now, the word in Greek for trials, periosmos, it can mean multiple things, but here it simply means hardships that test you. Difficult circumstances, hard situations that test the, the quality of your faith and endurance. Now, there's a couple hardships that James' audience was facing. As we go through the book of James, you will see over and over again, he will address two particular trials that they were facing. Number one, persecution. Number two, poverty. So we're going to come back and talk about those two at length as we go this semester. But James did not want to limit himself to just those two trials, so he describes these trials as various. Literally in Greek, multifaceted, multicolored. He's talking about trials of all shapes and sizes. Any hardship you go through, any difficult circumstance that tries your faith and endurance, that's what James is talking about this morning. Anything. So it's not just persecution or poverty. It includes sickness, loss of a job, death of a loved one, depression. Anything that you're going through that makes life hard for you. That's what James is talking about this morning, when you encounter trials of any kind. Now, what I want you to really notice about that phrase, though, is the very important small little word with which that phrase begins. When. When you encounter various trials. Not if, but when. By choosing that word, what James is saying is trials are inevitable. Trials are unavoidable in this life. We will all suffer hardship. That's just part of life on this planet. Now, for some of you, that's new. Some of you, you've lived a a fairly easy life. If the worst thing that's happened to you is that the Aggies postponed their game and you finally had a date, you were really looking forward to having dinner and hanging out with that person and it got canceled. That's sad, but if that's the worst thing that's happened to you, you've had a, a pretty easy life. But James wants you to understand If you've had an easy life, it is not because you're lucky. It is because you have not lived long enough. That's the reality. If life's been easy for you, it's because you haven't been alive long enough yet because all of us suffer. That is is an unavoidable reality in this life. This life is hard. All of us face trials. Now, some of you are not surprised by that because you are in a trial right this moment. You got dressed and scrubbed your face, came to church this morning. You look great on the outside, but on the inside, you are dying right now. You are suffering from something, financial loss, relational loss, physical pain. Something is just tearing you up inside, and you say, yeah, I know this. I know that we can't escape trials. And and I hope that if that is you, if you are facing hardship this morning, I hope that little word, win, will bring you comfort. Because what is the question that comes to our mind whenever life gets hard? Whenever we face a trial, what's the question that comes to my mind? Why me? Why my spouse? Why my child? Why is this coming to me and not to him? I look over here and I see this guy and he looks happy. 
His family's got it all together. His life looks great. So God, why am I suffering and he is not? In the midst of that question, what I need to remind myself is that little word when, none of us escape trials. None of us escape hardships. Not even that guy. So if if his life looks great right now, there's only one of two reasons. Number one, he hasn't lived long enough yet and the pain is coming, so he better buckle up. Or reason number two, he's just a lot better at hiding pain than I am. And I found that usually it's the second reason. Usually it's the second reason. Uh, We don't share our pain publicly. We don't share the bad stuff in our life for all to see. We don't air our dirty laundry. We air the good stuff in our life. We, We present a good face in public. For that reason, if all that you know about somebody is their public persona, their life is going to look a lot better than it actually is. You're not going to get an accurate perception of their life. That's the problem with Facebook, right? Facebook's great. Facebook's good. Facebook has a major problem. It does not present reality to us. So what do people post on Facebook? Well, you only post the good stuff, right? You only post the, the happy stuff. Look at my beautiful children and you put a picture sitting down to a great steak dinner. I love my husband. He is always so thoughtful. That's the kind of stuff we post on Facebook. All good stuff. You don't post the bad stuff. Spanking my child for hitting her brother. (laughs) You don't post throwing up that nice steak dinner. Uh, You don't post weeping because my husband forgot our anniversary again. You don't post the bad stuff. And so if you spend a lot of time on Facebook, you're going to get depressed. Because everybody's life looks great. Their their spouse is awesome. Their kids are awesome. Their job is awesome. Their vacation was awesome. Their whole life is awesome. But yours isn't. You compare the good in their life to to the bad you see in, in your life. And it looks like you're missing out. Looks like life isn't fair. You've got pain. They've got nothing but good. But that is not reality. Reality is their life is not awesome because life this side of heaven is not awesome. No one's life here is awesome. Awesome is the next life. When you see Jesus face to face, that's when life is awesome, not here. Here we struggle. Here we face trials and suffering. All of us. Trials are unavoidable for the human race. Absolutely unavoidable for the human race. And just so we're absolutely clear, let's remind ourselves that that reality, that trials are inevitable, that trials are inescapable, that truth is not God's fault. The fact that we suffer is not God's fault. End of Genesis chapter 1. God creates the heavens and the earth. He steps back and looks to see what he has made and concludes God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. Life as God created it in the Garden of Eden, it was all good, very good. There was no pain. There was no suffering. There were no hardships. Life was excellent. Life was perfect. That's what God intended for the human race. God created us to enjoy a face-to-face relationship with him walking in the cool of the garden. That's what God intended. That's what God offered to Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve were not satisfied in that. It was not enough just to enjoy the blessings of God. Adam and Eve decided they wanted to be gods too. And so they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and by that choice they introduced suffering and hardship to the human race. 
So when we suffer, we got to remind ourselves, this is not God's fault. God did not create this pain for me. It's humanity's fault. We chose sin instead of God, and sin breaks everything. Sin breaks this planet. This planet was not designed to hit us with hurricanes and droughts. That's sin. It broke creation. Sin broke our bodies. Our bodies weren't designed to get sick and die. No, that's sin's fault. Heart disease, cancer, MS, depression. Sin created those things, not God. Sin broke the good that God had made. Sin breaks everything. The planet, our bodies, our relationships, everything is broken by sin. Now, there is good news. God has provided deliverance from sin. Deliverance from the penalty of sin through Jesus Christ. God sent his own son, Jesus, to become a human being, take on human flesh. And Jesus was the one and only human being who actually got to choose whether he wanted to suffer or not. And he said, yes, I'll suffer for us. He took our sin upon himself, died in our place, and rose from the dead. And the moment that you believe that, God delivers you from sin. He rescues you from the penalty of sin the moment you believe Jesus suffered for you and rose from the dead. He delivers you from sin in that moment, but he does not deliver you from trials. Not yet. That comes in the next life. In this life, we all suffer. Christians are not immune to that. In this life, trials are inevitable. That's why James uses the the verb here, when you encounter Various trials. Interesting word in Greek. It means to fall unexpectedly into something. It was used of the the guy who traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho. And while he was on his way, thieves attacked him. He fell in among thieves. They attacked him and beat him and stole his stuff. What James is saying is trials aren't something you have to seek out. Trials aren't something you have to create or find in your life. No, they find you. They will seek you out. You will all of a sudden look up and realize you are surrounded by trials because that's how trials work. They attack you when you least expect it in the most unexpected way. That's the sad reality of this passage. All of us suffer trials. We cannot control the timing, the frequency, or the intensity of the trials that we face. The only thing we can control is our response. And that's what James wants to look at this morning. How do we respond when the inevitable trials of life come? James tells us, when you encounter various trials, consider it all joy. Now, this is the part of the verse that makes people mad. This is the part of the verse that confuses people. It would have been bad enough if all James said is, you are going to face various trials. That would have been bad enough news. Uh, But James has the audacity to go further than that and say, when you experience these unavoidable trials, you are to rejoice. You are to count them joy. Most of us, we, we read that and our first response is to think, are you kidding me? Seriously? You, you want me to rejoice when I'm in pain? That's ridiculous, James. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Are you kidding me? That is absurd. We respond in anger to that. How can you expect me to rejoice when I'm in pain? I, I want to help you to, to wrestle with that command, to, to understand what James is doing here by looking deeply at that word joy. That key word, joy. What is joy? Let's start by saying what joy is not. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is a pleasant feeling 
based on beneficial circumstances. So it's, it's a pleasant emotion you have in your gut when things are going well. Happiness is that feeling you have when you're sitting down over a nice dinner with your spouse or your friends on a Friday night and you're smiling and laughing. That's happiness. Happiness is that feeling you have when it's 75 degrees outside on an October afternoon and you're standing in Kyle Field watching the Ags beat LSU. That is happiness. A pleasant feeling based on circumstances. That's happiness, but that's not what James expects us to have when we suffer. In fact, if you feel happiness, if you feel a pleasant emotion within you when you suffer, that's not called godliness. That's called crazy. That's, that's delusional. That's masochistic if you feel good when you're in pain. James doesn't want us to be happy when we suffer. Happiness is not joy. Joy is deeper than that. Joy is not an emotion. Joy is an attitude. An attitude of gratefulness, an attitude that says, thank you to God for the life that I have, even when life is hard. That's joy. That's the core idea of joy. An attitude of gratefulness towards God, even when my life is hard. So joy is not an emotion, it's an attitude, and it's an attitude that is not based on circumstances like happiness is. It's an attitude that's based on choice. An attitude you choose to have. That's what James is telling us by that verb consider. In Greek, the word there, to consider, it means to choose to regard something to be true, even if it doesn't feel true. Especially if it doesn't feel true. To consider is to take something that doesn't look true and choose to believe that it is true. So we don't have to consider this room to be crowded this morning. It obviously is. No one's questioning that. It's as plain as the nose on your face. This place is crowded this morning. You don't have to consider it to be so. But pain as a source of joy, that's not obvious. Trials as a source of joy, that is not beyond doubt. Actually, uh, the evidence seems contrary to that. Trials seem a source of, of pain and suffering and grief, not a source of joy. And so because it is not obvious to us, joy is something you have to choose. It's not something that naturally comes to you when you suffer. You have to choose to embrace this attitude of gratefulness towards God. That's what James means by joy. So you put that together, consider and joy. And what James is saying when he says consider it all joy is he wants us to choose to be grateful. Choose to be grateful for the lives you have. He wants us to choose to believe that God is good even when life is not. That's joy. The choice to believe that God is good even when life is not. That's the root idea of joy. But to really understand joy, I want to show you one more passage. John chapter 11, don't have to turn there, I'll show it to you in a minute. John 11 was a really bad day for Jesus. Because in John chapter 11, one of Jesus' very close friends, a man named Lazarus, gets sick and dies. And I think we can all agree, if a very close friend of ours got sick and died, it would be a hardship for us. We would be in pain because of that. So Jesus faces this trial, this hardship, this suffering, because his close friend has died. How does Jesus respond? Jesus is God's son. He was perfect. I never sinned. And so you you can bank on the fact that if God says he wants us to consider trials to be joy, you're guaranteed that Jesus did that. 
Guaranteed that Jesus considered this this trial of his good friend dying, he considered it joy. He chose to be grateful in the midst of that. Jesus obeyed this, but I want you to see what joy looks like on Jesus' face in this passage. John 11, starting in verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Jesus, who is God in human flesh, Jesus, who did all things perfectly, Jesus, who always counted all hardships to be a source of joy. When his good friend Lazarus dies, he weeps. And what that teaches us is that joy is not antithetical to grief. The opposite of joy is not grief. The opposite of joy is not sadness. The opposite of joy is not tears. When you are suffering, it is not good to put a smile on your face. No, we grieve in that because that's what God in human flesh did. He grieved in that pain. He wept in that pain. When you suffer or a friend suffers, it is a godly thing to put your hand around them and weep with them. Because the opposite of joy is not weeping. What is the opposite of joy? Bitterness. Biblically speaking, the opposite of joy is bitterness. Bitterness is not a feeling, it is a choice. Bitterness is a choice to believe that God is not good. That this life he's given me is not a gift. It is not a good gift from him. Bitterness is a choice to embrace my anger. Now, when we suffer, it is normal to feel anger towards God. That's, that's very normal. That's not bitterness. Bitterness is when I embrace that anger. I don't confess that anger to God. I don't deal with that anger. I embrace and own and settle into that anger against God. That is bitterness, and that's the opposite of joy. That's what James wants us to avoid. Instead of choosing bitterness, he wants us to choose joy, to choose to be grateful even when life is hard, to choose to believe that God is good even when life is not. That's what James has for us this morning. James doesn't want us in the midst of pain to smile and look happy. James knows we're going to weep. He knows we're going to grieve. But he wants us in the midst of our tears to choose to believe that God is good even if life is not. That's the point of verse 2. But when you're really suffering, when you're in the midst of pain, it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to choose to believe that God is good when life is not. It's really hard to be grateful when you suffer. I learned that reality a a few years ago. Um, Here are my kids... Luke and Gracie, about three-year-old now, uh, turned three in October. Twins, they're beautiful, funny, smart kids, amazing kids. Did I mention smart? Do you notice the tape measure there? Not even three yet, and they're already building stuff. I have amazing kids, awesome kids. Now, what you may not know about Luke and Gracie is that God gave them to us after a long struggle with infertility. For a long time, we were trying to have kids, and, and we're not able to do that. That's a really painful struggle for us. Now, many of you are college students, and it's probably hard for you to wrap your mind around a struggle with infertility. You don't really want a baby right now. <laughs> hard enough time clothing and feeding yourself. You don't need another person to care for. Um, but I promise you, at some point, you're going to want to have a child, and then you will know how painful life is for those couples who can't. Really, really painful. Incredibly painful. 
And in the midst of that struggle with infertility, I began to ask God, why? God, why should I be grateful for this? Why should I count this to be a source of joy in my life? Why should I be grateful when yet another friend of mine is coming to me, telling me how he's about to be a dad for the second or third time, when I don't even get to be a daddy once? What should I be grateful for in that? James knows that question is going to come to our mind. That's a reasonable question. When we're in pain, when we suffer, why should we consider it to be joy? Why should we be grateful when we suffer? That is a completely reasonable question. James knows it's in our mind, and so he gives us two answers. Why should you count it joy when you suffer? Reason number one, look at verse three. He says, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What James is saying is reason number one to rejoice in the midst of suffering is because those trials can build your character now. Trials can build character now in this life. It's interesting the words he uses, the testing of your faith there in verse 3. The Greek there is is of the process that they use to refine gold. How do you refine gold? Well, first thing you got to do is melt it, right? You got to put it over a fire. And you melt it, and then the impurities rise to the surface, and you scrape them off. That's how trials work. They melt us. They're painful. They hurt us. But in the midst of that pain, the impurities in our life rise to the surface and are removed. We're purified through trials. We're improved through trials. Trials can make us better. And in particular, what James tells us is that trials can grow our endurance. That word endurance in in Greek, it's talking about the ability to bear up under a load. It was a word that was used for good soldiers, what, what defines a good soldier? Well, it's a person who under the, the hardships and suffering and pain of being in battle, they can bear up under that pain and fight on. That's endurance. The person who can persevere. Trials can grow our perseverance. And then verse four, if our perseverance grows, the result is that we become mature. Endurance can grow our maturity. And James uses a few different words there in verse four. It makes us perfect. And by perfect, he doesn't mean that we no longer sin. He means that we become mature as followers of Christ. Our life is is spiritually mature. Then he describes it as complete. We are complete in every way. There is no part of our character that is missing. We are lacking in nothing. That's another term that was used for soldiers. A good soldier is lacking in nothing. He is well equipped. He's ready for whatever life throws his way. Trials can grow your endurance, which in turn can make you mature. Trials can grow you in the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Trials can make you mature now if you will obey verse 2 passage assumes that you're applying verse 2. Trials do not in and of themselves make you mature. If if you do not choose to believe that God is good even when life is not, then that trial will not make you mature. It will make you bitter. It will harden you against God if you don't apply verse 2. But if you will apply verse 2 and choose to be grateful even when life is hard, then God will use that trial to refine your character and make you mature. That's the first benefit that comes to us through trials. The second is found in verse 12. Turn to verse 12. Just going to look at it for a moment this morning. We're going to come back and study this verse in detail next week. James says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. 
For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What James is saying, second reason to be grateful in the midst of trials is that because trials can bring reward in the next life. Trials can build character now and bring reward later. Uh, What James is picturing here is that moment when this life comes to an end, when the trial and pain of this life ends and we stand before Jesus. If we have been faithful, even in the hard times of life, if we have been grateful to him, even in the hard times, then Jesus will reward us with the crown of life. Now, James does not describe what that crown of life is, but from the word in Greek, he's not talking about a crown they put on the heads of a king. He's talking about the victor's wreath, a little wreath that they put on the head of a victorious athlete. It was a reward, an honor, a source of glory. What James is saying is if you will count your trials joy, then when you stand before Jesus Christ, he will reward you for all of eternity. The momentary pain you suffered in life, if you suffer it well, you get glory forever. Reward for eternity. And so let's, let's pull this together. Let's summarize this. Why should I be grateful when I suffer? Well, James is not saying be grateful for the trial. Be happy about this pain you're in. No, the pain isn't good. The hardship is not good. God did not design us to be in hardship. Sin created that. The hardship is not good. What's good is what our loving Heavenly Father can create through that hardship. If we will let him, if we will choose to believe that he is good even when life is not, then our loving Heavenly Father will take that painful thing, that inevitable thing that we all suffer, and he will use it as a source of good in our life to build our character now and earn us reward later. I think often we look at James chapter 1, and for many of us it sounds like really bad news. It's a really hard passage. It seems really depressing. It's inevitability of trials. Actually, it's really meant to be good news. It's meant to be a joyous passage because the reality is all people suffer. Every human being suffers, but we have a loving heavenly father who will not allow our suffering to go to waste. He loves us so much that he will use the inevitable painful consequences of sin to bring good in our life. We have an incredibly gracious father. In goodness, he will use the pain that you suffer like all human beings do to be a source of incredible good to you in this life and the next. That's why we can be grateful in the midst of trials. We have a loving father who's not going to allow that trial to go to waste. He's going to use it for good. He's going to grow us, mature us, and help us earn eternal reward if we will let him, if we will trust But let's be honest, in the midst of a trial, when you're suffering, when you're in pain, even knowing all this, it is still really, really hard to obey verse 2. When you're in pain, you might know all these theological reasons for joy, but it is really hard to be grateful in the midst of pain. That's where I found myself. Years ago, when we were dealing with infertility, I went to seminary. I studied all this stuff in Greek. It doesn't matter. When I'm in pain, it's hard to do it. It's really hard to be grateful when I'm in pain. And so I would cry out to God, God, how? How do I do this thing? How do I be grateful in the midst of trials? This is too hard for me. This is too big for me. I am weak. I am in pain. I cannot do this. God, how? How do I be grateful in the midst 
of trials? James answers that question in verse 5. Look at verse 5. James says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. James is saying the answer to the question, how, is you just got to ask. Just ask God for help. Ask and you shall receive wisdom from God. Now, wisdom, broadly speaking, means knowledge applied. The wise person is the person who lives skillfully by applying God's word. But here, it's more narrow. It's focused on what we just read about in verses 2 through 4. Wisdom here is the insight and ability to apply verse 2. It's the ability to be grateful in the midst of trials. If you find it difficult to give thanks when you're in pain, God says, just ask for my help. Just ask me to give you wisdom. Just ask me to give you insight so that you can see reality as I see it. So that you can see through this trial to the good that I will produce. If you ask for wisdom, I will give it to you. I think often when we're struggling, especially if it's a struggle that has gone on for years, you're number two, you're number three, you're number four of this hardship. It is, it is so hard to feel like God is close to us. It feels like he's so far away. I'm suffering and it feels like God is way up there in heaven, kicking back in his heavenly recliner, just looking to see occasionally, how's he doing today? James is saying, no, that's not the case. God is with you when you suffer. He is right there with you, just waiting to give you wisdom, waiting to give you the help that you need to see this trial as something that can be a source of good. All you have to do is ask. Just ask and he'll give. He will share with you his wisdom, his insight, so that you can do the impossible. You can be grateful in the midst of hardships. But James says, there is one condition. One condition, look at verse 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If we want God to share his wisdom with us, then we have to ask in faith. We have to ask in faith. We cannot have doubt when we ask God. Now, I'll be honest with you. This verse was really hard for me for a long time. This verse was a real struggle to me for a long time because I am by nature a doubter. Just in case you're wondering that. My natural bent is towards doubt. If I do like a personality test or spiritual gifts test, faith is at the bottom. What's at the top for me is like critical, analytical, logical, rational. That's me. And so faith for me is hard and doubt is easy. So I read a verse like like here, verse 6, and I think, oh no. Man, am I hosed here? How am I ever going to receive wisdom from God? Because not a day goes by that I don't wrestle with doubt. I struggled with that until I really studied the word. I looked at the word in Greek and I found out James is not talking about our intellectual doubts. He's not talking about our intellectual, rational wrestling with our beliefs. He means something different. Doubt here in Greek, it means to distinguish or to divide or to separate. What he's talking about is the divided person that we studied in detail last week. James is talking about the guy who who really likes God. He likes all that God can provide, but he also really likes the world. He likes all that the world can provide. And so he tries to hold on to both. He is double-minded, verse 8. Literally, he has two minds, two purposes. 
At some moments running this way towards God, at some moments running this way towards the world. James is talking about the guy who sits on a fence. Guy who sits, why, why do people sit on a fence? Because they, they like options. You sit on a fence because you want to keep your options open. If I like what's in this field, I'll go that way. If I like what's in this field, I'll go that way. And what James wants us to understand is God doesn't give help to fence sitters. God does not help us so long as we sit on the fence waiting to decide whether we're going to commit to God or commit to the world. God doesn't give wisdom to that person. God says, no, first, you got to get off the fence. First, you have to choose me. Choose my field. Sell out for me. If you give me yourself, if you commit to me, then I will give you the wisdom you seek. Now, practically speaking, what does that look like? What does it mean to get off the fence? What does it mean to ask in faith and not to doubt? Uh, Let me give you three summaries of that. I think this is what James has in mind. The person who asks in faith is the person who says to God, God, whatever comes, I accept. Whatever you bring in my life, whether it feels good or feels bad, I accept it. I may not like it, but I accept it. God, whatever comes, I accept. This is the person who says to God, God, wherever you lead, I will follow. I'm not gonna sit up here on a fence and wait to see whether I'm gonna follow you or follow the world. No, I give you myself now. I give you all of me. Even in the midst of my tears, even in the midst of my sadness and my grief and my anger, I give you all of me. Even though I don't understand what you're doing in my life right now, I give you all of me. Wherever you lead, I will follow. This is a person who says to God, God, not my will, but yours be done. God, I don't like this pain in my life. I don't like this sickness. I don't like this loss of a job. I don't like this relational problem. I don't like what's going on with my kids. I don't like this suffering. I want it to be over. I wish it was over yesterday. And yet, not my will, but yours be done. I trust you, God. I believe that you are good even when life is not. That's what it means to ask in faith and not in doubt. You commit yourself to God. You say, God, I don't understand. I don't like it, but I commit myself to you. Trusting that as I give myself to you, you will give me the wisdom and insight I need to be able to do the impossible, to be grateful in the midst of pain. That's what James offers us this morning for application. I just want us to look right at these verses and apply it. The thing about this passage is that I can guarantee you that every person in this room needs it. We all need this passage because uh, if you gather together everyone in this room, what you would see is that every single one of us is either in a trial, just coming out of a trial, or about to go into a trial. That's all of us. In a trial, coming out of a trial, about to go in a trial. So all of us need to apply this passage. When you are in a trial, when life gets hard, when it is difficult, what James is saying to you is in the midst of that trial, cry out to God for help. Ask God to give you the wisdom to see through the pain to the good that will be on the other side. Ask God for the help to be grateful in the midst of difficulty. And in fact, ask other people to help you ask God. Solicit others to pray for you, to pray that God would give you wisdom and strength to believe that he is good even when life is not. So ask God for help and have others help you ask God for help. But as you ask God for help, get off the fence. 
Get off the fence first. Say to God, God, I don't like this. I don't like this, but I'm not going to sit on the fence. I give you my life. God, whatever you give, I will accept. Whatever you allow to come my way, I will accept it, the good and the bad. God, wherever you lead, I will follow. God, not my will, but yours be done. I don't like this thing, but I commit myself to you. If you will ask in faith, if you will give God your life and ask him for help, he will give you the strength and ability to do the impossible, to be grateful in the midst of trials, to believe that he is good even when life is not. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we rejoice that you love us so much that you use these unavoidable pains and hardships in our life for our good. Lord, you do not owe us that. We are sinners. We do not deserve anything from you. You would be fully justified to leave us in the pain and misery that is common to all of humanity. And yet in grace and in love, you reach down into our lives. You step near to us and you use our pain for good. You use our pain to transform us and make us like Jesus. You use our pain to earn for us reward and glory that we will enjoy for all eternity. Lord, you are so good for us. You are so good to us. And Father, I pray for your help to see that. I pray that you would give us the ability to see through our pain to the good that you're bringing on the other side. And Father, in particular right now, I want to lift up to you every person here who is in the midst of a trial. Father, we know that even though everybody here looks like they have life together, we all look nice, we've come to church this morning in our nice clothes, Lord, I know that there's people here who are just dying inside. Father, we lift them up to you right now. We pray that you would, you would meet them in the moment of their need and that you would give them the supernatural ability to do the impossible, to be grateful in the midst of trial, to believe that you are good even when life is not. I pray, Father, be with those who are suffering. And for all of us, Lord, help us to encourage one another. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to join with one another. Helping each other to walk through the trials of life well. And Father, finally, we thank you for Jesus. The one and only human being who got to choose whether he would suffer or not. And he said yes. Thank you for that. Thank you that he chose to suffer and he did it for us. He suffered in our place. Thank you that he suffered for us and then rose from the dead, conquering sin and death and Satan so that we have hope. All suffer, but we suffer with hope. We suffer with hope because Jesus died for us and rose from the dead. We know that we will spend eternity with him, that we will enjoy life as it was meant to be, free of pain, free of suffering. Lord, we look forward to that day. I pray that in the meantime, we would be faithful. That in the meantime, we would trust that you are good even when life is not. Thank you, Father, for your love and grace given us in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.